Live from the Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago, Illinois, this is Bug House! Uh, it is fucking cold. What is it, two degrees outside right now? Something like yeah. that? With a wind chill, it's negative. Go fuck yourself. God hates Chicago, we know that. But here we are tonight, so thank you all for being here. We've got a hell of a show this evening. Uh, just a little bit about what Bug House is, because we've got some friends from Italy who are like, I don't know. No idea. No idea. So in the mid-20th century, uh, here in Chicago, there was uh, a thing called bug house, which is slang for crazy house, where the lunatics went. And this was a, a live show, much like this, where people would get up on stage or on so literal soapboxes, and they would debate the issues of the day. And it was used, it was, it was the dialectic, which is debate through reason. So any of your emotions, get them out of here. They belong at another bar, a shittier bar down, down, down the road. This is where reason takes place. So this is like the mid, the, the, you know, the mid 20th century. And over time, the art of the dialectic has gone by the wayside. And we have the internet to thank for that. Twitter battles and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat filter or whatever. Right, we don't, we don't discuss things anymore. We bring our emotions into these conversations and we talk about how we feel and then we yell at each other and if somebody disagrees with us, they're the fucking enemy. It's black and white, there is no more gray. Except right here, at Bug House at the Haymarket. We're trying to bring the dialectic back. Yeah. Actual thoughts. So what you're gonna hear tonight are three topics, three bouts, with six writers, performers, Debating these different topics, each one taking a different side. And there's, there may be some insults, but they're all friendly. But none of it is emotionally driven. It's all through reason. So tonight, you're going to hear about whether God is judging us. And debating that issue is Vincent Truman. And Frank Lydon. And then we've got... Another really important topic, Marvel or DC, which is better? <laughs> so debating that is Andy Diamond <laughs> and Mike Vinopra. <laughs> and then our last bout of the night is perhaps the most pressing, especially here in Chicago, an Irish town, even though last week, Chicago overwhelmingly, by like the 26% of people that showed up to vote, said no more to the white Irishman. Daily, get the fuck out of here. Which made me, as a white man, really happy. And I'm not kidding. St. Patrick's Day, which is this month, is it racism? Or are we just celebrating a great culture? And that is being debated by, uh, who do we have doing that? Oh, Brian Sweeney. 
who's, who's Irish, by name, at least. Uh, and then Elizabeth Thierry, who was just in Ireland. Like, she just flew in. Boy, were her drunk on the Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Vincent Truman, you got God is watching. Hi. You guys can hear me okay, yeah? Yeah. Real. Okay, uh, the proposition here tonight is, does God judge us? Is he aware of our movements, our failures, our triumphs, our relationships? According to this, it's yes, so I think I'm about done. Do I have any more time? You're good. Okay, good. Um, then I'll go on a bit. First, I'd like to take a look at all of us, just for a moment. And this goes to a series, uh, a trilogy, a trinity, if you will, of hypotheses that I'm going to lay down on you. So I've written this argument here on paper. As I've written it, have I judged it? Indeed, I have. I have my esteemed opponent here who is wearing plaid. Are we judging each other? I just did, in a way, and I'm sure he's doing the same to me. Are you all judging us? Certainly. Do we have one gentleman in particular who's going to be judging and deciding the victor? Yes. So, would this evening be compelling if we didn't have all this judgment? Certainly not. So one of the hypotheses that I'd like to put out to you now is that assessment, opinion, judgment is human nature. So where does human nature come from? Well, God has given us love, compassion, kindness, free will, begrudgingly, but he gave us that as well. So it is not a stretch of the imagination to conceive that judgment has the same author as all those other things. Judgment is the common denominator of how we communicate with God, after all. Perfect example, what do we send up? What do we uh, wish whenever there is a mass shooting? Don't answer yet. What do we send up if uh, a loved one, uh, one, of their, uh, one of their loved ones is sick, ill, or their pet dies or something like that? Or what do we send to the people of Las Vegas on which we've sent Don Hall? They have no idea what they're in for. We send thoughts and prayers. Now, thoughts, that's a whole different thing, but prayers isn't a prayer, an argument, a request for God to make judgment and come to a conclusion in your favor. It most certainly is. People do it all the time, so they must think God is listening, considering and judging what shall be done. Or, put another way, thy will be done. You may have heard that one as well. But let's not take my word for it or the human race's word for it. Let's go straight to the book, the scriptures. Perhaps you've heard of those. How legit are the scriptures? Well, the Old Testament is the document which transcends all of our human accomplishments, and by human accomplishments, I mean uh, wars, invasions, genocides, etc., 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 to form the very core of all three of the major monotheistic faiths. 
which has given them justification for centuries of wars and invasions and genocides, etc. One must, if one believes in the God of the Bible, or the Torah, or the Koran, one must respect the words about him that brought him into your minds, your hearts, your souls, motherfuckers. Just thought I'd throw, <laughs> needed to throw that in for a laugh. Thank you very much, sir. You can start in, you can start in Genesis when Adam and Eve were expelled from paradise for obtaining the fruit of knowledge, AKA the knowledge of good and evil, AKA the knowledge of right and wrong. Genesis five. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like a God. You will know good and evil. So take all that on board for a second. If you eat of the fruit of knowledge, you will be like God who knows right and wrong. How do we determine what is right and wrong without opinion, assessment, and judgment? How did he realize Adam and Eve did wrong? Judgment. How did he choose to kick them out of paradise? This is judgment. Check out these quotes, baby. Genesis 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Who do you think that's about, guys? Psalm 7, God judges the righteous, that's a clue, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 75, but God is the judge, another clue, right? He puts down one and exalts the other. Psalms 96, let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Corinthians 5, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 6, and Jesus said, therefore I said unto you that no man can come to me except were it to be given to him of the Father. Acts 17, for he has set a day where he will judge the world and most importantly at all my Father. John Joseph Mulvihill, which uh, often said, God damn it, Vincent. <laughs> this is not a laissez-faire deity, guys. This is not a God who says, hey, you do you. <laughs> this God doesn't do that. Judgment Day is not a 1999 film by Mario Van Peebles, which I'm judging you haven't seen much either. I didn't see it. I didn't even know it existed. I was looking for the Terminator reference on Google and I got this Mario Van Peebles thing. I don't even know what it is. Is it an actual film? I don't even know. Point being, judgment from on high is the unbreakable cornerstone of all three monotheistic religions. Scripture is notoriously cherry-picked to support one belief or another. And religion has come up some, with some great ones. I love that slavery thing, love that suppression of women, love that rejection of homosexuality. And anyone who believes it has to do some mental gymnastics to kind of like justify that. And well, it was the Old Testament, it was the Bronze Age. That's how they, everybody thought then, just so they can still believe, which is cool and all. However, to cherry pick away God's judgment of his people, us, leaves you with little more than a 20-page pamphlet entitled Things to See in Galilee for less than five shekels a day. That's what you're left with if you cherry-pick all the way. So, indeed, scripture for all three monotheistic religions show zero gray area in a creator who delights in creating, assessing, judging, and occasionally flooding 
his creations. Now, finally, can you conclude that God is not involved, does not assess, does not judge? I believe certainly you can, but you'd never reach that conclusion without God's gift of judgment. Thank you. Not a bad case. Makes you feel weird about jerking off, right, Brian? Yeah. But it kind of, yeah, voyeuristic, yeah? That's hot. All right, so the other side of the argument, God's not judging us. Here's Frank Lydon. Thank you. Thank you again for my esteemed opponents. That was quite a good argument. And now for the word of plaid. Okay, let's, let's bring this down a little bit. And uh, help me out. Close your eyes for a moment. And drop your shoulders. Breathe. And feel all the great energy in this room. Really focus and be present. And feel and be aware of each other in this moment. Now, I know this sounds like the beginning of a yoga class, but it feels good, right? That bond, that energy, that when we slow down and pay attention to it, we can sense it in a very real way. It can feel incredible. And it's important to be familiar with that feeling because that bond is also the connection that we have to everything. Everything in the universe the stars, the planets, the galaxies, the black holes, and the space in between all of it. The billions of years cascade of creation that, that traces back to the beginning, to creation itself, creation zero, if you will. And that connection to everything and the beginning of everything is also the proof that God, or whatever created us, isn't judging us. In fact, God doesn't give a shit about us. God can't give a shit about us. Y'all, we're a speck on a crumb, on a morsel, on a chunk, on a speck, on a speck. You know, we're the ever-softening voice of a shy kitten in a vast and infinite and rapidly expanding universe of wrote construction inside a death metal concert. <laughs> a universe that will grow quiet and die many billions of years from now. So if that's God, then God is mortal like all of us. So expecting God to be paying attention to everything that's happening everywhere across all time is folly. Also, I'd like to point out that if God can experience all time at once, then God is already dead somewhere in time. Cool. Now, okay, I know that is some bleak ass shit that I just threw at you, but bear with me, okay? It, it gets better. I, I'm not here to tell you there's no God or to knock anyone's faith. I don't know. And, in fact, I think faith is one of the most powerful tools at, that we have at our disposal. It's right up there with love and empathy. That's also my point. 
we're looking up and out with our faith for bigger answers when the answers that matter are right here in front of us. God made us with all the tools and ability to be here and look out for each other. So if we put that faith in each other and show each other empathy and love and we mean it, we don't need God to give a shit about us. It doesn't matter if God is judging us. Instead, we're, we constantly ask God to take sides. Help, help our side win this war, God. Help me win the lottery, Lord. Uh, you ever see the football player drop to a knee, to one knee after scoring a touchdown, punch his chest, kiss his hand, and point to the sky? Thanking God for his, the touchdown he just scored. What would, God's, what would God, God's response be to that? Uh, just lost my place. <laughs> what would God say in response to that? Uh, you're welcome, I guess. But give yourself some credit, man. You scored that touchdown with the help of your team. Sure, I guess... I guess by default, I'm responsible for giving you the ability to do so. But hell, man, I just put things in motion when I create all things. Now, I'm going back to go, I'm going to go back and tweak this black hole over here and then destroy this galaxy over here because I don't like how it's shaped and I need to start over. Also, I'm dead somewhere in time, so bye. bye. <laughs> we understand so much now about the universe and how we came into being and how we are made and how tiny we really are, by denying that understanding and shoehorning God into outdated, antiquated biblical beliefs from a time in human history when our understanding was rudimentary, we shortchange ourselves. Back to the speck on the speck on the speck thing. If God created everything, he did so by setting a whole lot of complicated events in motion and then allowing those things to play out. If God directly created us, doesn't it make more sense that he gave us all the tools and resources we need to take care of ourselves and evolve and advance, advance to become the amazing creatures we are? Because that's what's happened. God sets it, forgets it, and moves on. It's up to us to make it succeed or fail. <clears throat> it's so self-centeredly human to think that even though we are in some far corner of this massive universe, that God is still watching over each and every one of us, guiding our path, holding our hand, and living inside each of us in some tangible way. God gave a shit when he created us. When he created us. The rest is up to us. The search for meaning and reason for existence is understandable. So is the hope that there is something else for us after we die. I hope there is, and, and these are all things on my mind too, just like everyone else. There's no point in worrying about these things when we can't, or at least don't yet know the answers, or have the ability to do anything about them. So I say, instead of putting all this energy into belief in something intangible, ethereal, and let's face it, largely made up, I say we put our faith in what we do understand and is real and right here in front of us, each other. That's how we succeed. And if we get good at that, it won't matter whether God is judging us or gives a shit about us. Because God doesn't. Because God can't. Thank you.
All right. So there you go. You've heard it. This is the official moment. Is God judging us or not? The Honorable Paul Teoto, what do you say? Judge. <laughs> uh, Mr. Truman made his point well. So okay. <laughs> so he made it well, but yes, did, did he make it? So God is judging us. There we go. Vincent Sherman's the winner. God is judging us. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, here's Mr. Mike Vinopal arguing that Marvel is marvelous. So you ask me, which is better? I assure you, in the next seven minutes, there will be no doubt which reigns supreme. <laughs> Let me begin with perhaps my strongest, most bulletproof evidence. Exhibit A. I can marvel at the incredible phenomenon that is marvel. <laughs> I can DC at the incredible phenomenon that is DC. <laughs> See how much more that sentence sucks. Ah! Oh, yeah! <laughs> All right, let's. Let's keep going. I'm just mad at that sentence. Please, please. Furthermore, Marvel is such a superior word in the English language that I use it in this dialectic over 50 times. <laughs> Secondly, I would like to point out that all the incredibly Powerful and magnificent, marvelous, see what I did there? Marvel females and characters of color, whether you are coming at me as a comic book purist or a voracious consumer of the films that they inspire, there is no denying this very simple fact. It is irrefutable. Exhibits B, C, D, and eventually Z. Look at these wonderful, powerful people. In the X-Men alone, Jean Grey and the Phoenix, Storm, Rogue, black and white, powerful females with some of the fiercest powers in any universe. <laughs> and just if you think about it a little more, Mystique Beast and Nightcrawler, beautiful, talented, blue people. Astounding agility and intelligence. Stay right there, stay right there. Silver Surfer and Colossus. Incredible silver people of depth. Colossus is seen here engaging in some interracial mutant romance with Kitty Pride, the youngest female to ever join the X-Men. Ladies, she's amazing. And this is a power couple right there. 
And just in case that this is lost on anyone that doesn't know his backstory, Colossus, well, Colossus, he's a good guy, and he's a Russian. <laughs> There's Marvel breaking down stereotypes, making commentary on our world's cultural and political affairs. Right there, Marvel, come on. They were seeing in the future. And I know a bunch of people here tonight and listening on the podcast have seen the new previews for Captain Marvel. And the captain's a motherfucking lady! I was supposed to be dancing when that changed. Just keep dancing. Yeah! The superhero was originally reserved for a male alien military officer of the Cree Imperial militia named Marvell in the 60s. Check this dude out. Check him out. He's space-born. Check him out. He somehow came out of the Holocaust. Who the fuck is this guy? Now, Carol Danvers, the young lady there, of the United States. Oh, shit. Carol Danvers of the United States Air Force, originally known simply as Miss Marvel, New Marvel in the comic, in the comic world. And during an explosion, their DNA fused and she took over the moniker Captain Marvel, now reaching the mainstream through Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's some badass feminist shit I think we can all applaud. Come on, everybody. Yeah! And keep that shit going for motherfucking Black Panther! Come on! Yeah! Seven Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture. And I know we're not here for film, but that is some shit. If you will, Dave. The comic term film is a culturally significant cinematic masterpiece blending sci-fi future tech with African culture in a way that is both inspiring and achingly beautiful. Look at him. Nothing in the DC universe even comes close. And what the fuck does DC even mean? What do they even have? I will concede that Superman and Batman are fairly iconic in their own rights. But come on. That's all you got? A dude that's super? And a dude that's into bats? Come the fuck out! I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. What about Catwoman? What about Poison Ivy? They're female. Bravo! Nice job noticing their breasts, mister. Sorry, Frank. But think about this for a second. In the DC Universe, the powerful female roles are nearly exclusively... VILLAINS! <laughs> One more. DC? More like D. 
dick club. <laughs> Marvel has a laundry list of classic heroes that have dominated since the early 60s. What's more classic than the amazing Spider-Man? And there's Daredevil. And there's the Incredible Hulk. And Captain America. And Iron Man. And Thor. Shit all the Avengers. The Fantastic Four. The X-Men. And within the X-Men alone, you have legends like Wolverine. And you have Professor Xavier and Gambit and Magneto and Sabretooth and all the powerful ladies and characters of color that I've already mentioned. Hot damn! Oh, back it up, David. <laughs> I could keep going, but I only have seven minutes, so people, let's talk about Deadpool. Deadpool led to the tremendously successful film adaptation, which in turn opened the door for Logan. Movies where the comics and graphic novels could truly be brought to life on the big screen with the grit, intensity, and edge of the books and comics. With DC, you've got that humongous turd that was Superman versus Batman, which even Ben Affleck Dispended, displayed visible shame for his involvement uh, during interviews leading up to the culture. Look at that sadness. And I haven't even touched on the fact that Marvel far exceeds DC with regards to the richest of the tapestry of interwoven stories within the Marvel Universe. Stan motherfucking Lee. True visionary. A man that embodies pop cultural. Yeah, go ahead, applaud that man. Look at him. Rest in peace, right? True visionary, a man that embodies pop culture with literally hundreds of cameos to his name for TV and film, and not just Marvel movies. This dude was in Mallrats. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> huh? So just keep it right there, baby. You can't name the creative director for DC because nobody from DC's creative team has the impact on our culture that Mr. Stan Lee has had. Stan Lee, along with his buddy Jack Kirby, rebranded the whole thing, naming it Marvel in the 60s and releasing the first issue of Fantastic Four. This was groundbreaking and changed the tone of comics as they had previously existed from their inception in the mid-30s, developing from the American Pulp Magazine publications. There was a little something for everybody in this quartet. Not just one lone superhero up against the evil forces of the universe, but a goddamn dream team. A couple friends and their sisters. The flexible Stretch Armstrong fellow, Mr. Fantastic. The super strength of the thing. The firepower of the human torch and the invisible woman. A crew of superheroes displaying camaraderie and humanity, knowing that they needed each other and their combined strength and powers to protect their world from doom, and in this case, Dr. Doom. I know DC has Justice League, but Marvel has multiple dream teams in the Fantastic Four, the X-Men, the Avengers. And in this way, Marvel shows us time and time again that there is a superhero inside all of us and that when we band together, we create something greater than ourselves. 
Marvel crushes DC. I arrest my case. <laughs> Mike Minoble likes Marvel. Let's hear from one more time. Come on. And now here's Andy Diamond to say Mike was wrong. DC is where it's at. Whatever happened to that? Uh, can you say something about the emotions being out the window, the logic, the, the arguments, the dialect? Okay, man. Uh, <laughs> clearly, you're a fan. I can't hold that against you. But here's the thing. All right, so DC or Marvel, that's the question. My position. The truth, DC, as David put it, is Superman. Good evening. Uh, it may surprise you to know I'm a black woman in my mid-50s. And as such, while I'm sure there are comic book nerds out there who fit my general description, I dare say uh, they're not the majority among us. So it should not surprise you to know that I'm not one of them. But I think that puts me in a better position to uh, truthfully engage with the facts in this situation. So, uh, besides the true fact that I've never given this subject a moment's thought, <laughs> before I had to, <laughs> happily, my superpower is research. So, after a momentary rant shared only with Joe James, my Alfred, which went something like, okay, exactly like this, I cannot tell you how deeply I do not give a fuck. <laughs> but <laughs> for the sake of the dialectic, I began my work. So as with all research projects, methodology was key. I used three time-honored techniques. Two were anecdotal, uh, the first being investigating my own personal experience, and the second, asking the nerds that I know. And then thirdly, in the way of 21st century pseudo-scholars everywhere, I googled the shit out of this mess. <laughs> Method number one, my personal experience. Unsurprisingly, method number one yielded little data. Uh, because this is about comics, and I never really read them. So, that takes me to method number two. Method number two, speaking to nerds. Uh, 120-something answered, uh, I'm not sure, I like different heroes in both universes. 30-something uh, said, as far as comics go, I'm tied. There are too many stories I love across both uh, universes, too many characters that I relate to across both. It's hard for me to pick one over the other. Uh, it comes down to preference at the time of reading them. Uh, do I want a darker, more serious story, DC? Or do I want something that's a little lighter, makes me happier, whatever. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, uh, there were certainly people who were rabid about one campus uh, camp versus another who said they could talk about it all night. Um, and I did make the questionable decision to pose a question to my students, uh, college students, and all, it was all I could do to get them to shut the hell up. Um, but these various impassioned nerd treaties helped me realize that for a truly scientific, unarguable, Conclusion to be drawn, I'd have to move on to method number three, the Google. Now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the rest of you, however you self-identify, we all know the Google is a black hole. It's a gravitational pull so powerful one may never escape. But it is a good way to take a quick deep dive into the depths of esoterica. So I would just have to beware the undertow as I prepared, packed some snacks, left a note, 
case the search party needed to come find me. And then I Googled DC versus Marvel. Age-old rivalry, of course. But using my superpower and the power of the Google, I was able to determine beyond a shadow of a doubt DC rules. First stop, obviously, DCComics.com. Welcome to the official site, DC. Home to the world's greatest superheroes. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, The Flash, Aquaman, Cyborg, Cyborg, I don't know, whatever. Of course, you say, of course, they're gonna say they have the greatest superheroes. You're right, even if it's true, as a scientist, I can't just take their word for it. So I began to excavate the facts. First thing that jumped out was the number of firsts. First superhero, 1935, Dr. Occult. He was a private eye, he was a real magician, precursor to, to Dr. Strange, same creator as Superman, the greatest superhero of all time, and who, in 1938, was the first to wear skin-tight costumes and capes. Also, 1938, the first superhero to wear a mask was the Crimson Avenger. He didn't have any powers except his fists, his wits, his gadgets, and then came Batman. DC also introduced the first superhero supergroup with Justice League in 1960, but let's take a step back. Okay, in the beginning, DC was known for telling powerful stories, colorful stories of gods who performed incredible feats to protect humanity and the greater good. Superman was the standard when it came to superheroes. He was surrounded by other characters with innate godlike abilities, Aquaman, The Flash, Wonder Woman, and more. Batman, who was a human character, became extraordinary by pushing himself to the limit to keep up with these superpowered peers at every turn. And of course, you want to know who's the greatest. The great heroes demand the greatest of nemeses. And the majority of DC's villains are overwhelmingly better than those of Marvel. What makes them more appealing is they all have like tragic Basque stories that turn them into these formidable foes. Uh, whereas with Marvel, they just became shitty people. Um, to quote my, my Alfred, Joe James, DC has insane villains. Uh, and at the risk of being eye-crossingly nerdish, here are the top 10 ranked totally lifted from somewhere in the interwebs. I, I was blacking out from lack of oxygen. so. Apologies for not being able to give proper credit for the list, but hey, I had to suffer to learn this mess, so there will be no escape for you. Number 10, Anted Monitor. Not a villain in the traditional sense, a force of absolute destruction, driven by his very nature to destroy everything in his path up to and including reality itself. When he shows up, this is a crisis between realities, a crucible of metaphysical proportions which, from which survival is, at best, an uncertain outcome. That's a pretty bad guy. Number nine, Captain Cold. The leader of Flash's rogues may not be the most vicious of the Scarlet Speedster's foes, but he is symbolic of an entire contingent of DC's villains. The ultimate everyman opportunist, Captain Cold, is a scoundrel with a code of honor. One that's earned him the respect of many of his fellow villains and a position at the top of the street thug hierarchy. And you know, you gotta name the bad guys because like, who would a fellow be if there wasn't Yago? You know what I'm saying? Who the hell cares otherwise? <laughs> Number eight, Dust Deathstroke, and obviously we're going up. Deathstroke 
straddled the line between hero and villain. He even teamed with his arch enemies, the Teen Titans, for time in the old DC universe. And he is the ultimate assassin, a master killer. No remorse, no hesitation. Number seven, Zoom. Eobard Thawne is, almost, in almost every way, the exact opposite of his pure-hearted nemesis, Barry Allen, vicious and determined. His goal is no less than a total erasure of the Flash and seeing the timeline of the DC Universe remade in his own image. Number six, Brainiac. It'd be easier to write Brainiac off as the ultimate expression of brains against Superman's brawn, but the real nature of his rivalry is more sinister. He possesses unparalleled intelligence, but what he truly represents to Superman and to the DC Universe at large is an utter lack of compassion. Number five, Ra's al Ghul. There are other villains who might better fit the role of Batman's thematic opposite, but it's Ra's al Ghul who is the Cape Crusader's true equal, immortal, ancient, and cunning. He's a leader of the League of Assassins. The League of Assassins, it kind of makes you want to join. And a manipulator of the highest caliber. So, number four, Sinestro. In the blackest day, in the, blackest, in the brightest night, beware your fears made into light. I guess that's a quote. Sinestro is a megalomaniac, highest order, abusing his power as, green, as a Green Lantern, which is a tricky thing right there. You could be a Green Lantern and be that guy. Anyway, to enslave his homeworld of Korgar, even before falling from the Green Lantern core in disgrace, he wields a power of fear through his, he has a yellow power ring, and he runs Sinestro Corp, a conglomerate of beings dedicated to spreading terror and ruin throughout the universe. Number three. Darza is perhaps DC's ultimate expression of evil, obsessed with his quest for the anti-life equation. The mad god and lord of apocalypse, clever, is possessed of power beyond measure and a contempt for all whom he sees as beneath his strength. Darkseid has gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with Superman again and again, and he single-handedly fought the entire Justice League to a standstill. Number two, the Joker. Madness, chaos, mayhem, <laughs> need we say more? All right, these are the facets of, of the Joker's fractured personality. We know him, we love him. While some of Batman's en enemies have grown into more recent deadly incarnations, and they had somewhat silly origins, the Joker has always been a murderous agent of anarchy. Uh, he's considered Batman's greatest enemy, an opposite number, and he's also challenged the entire DC Universe single-handedly. But it's not his occasional forays into global villainy that make him one of the most feared and effective villains in comics. It's his willingness to go further, to strike deeper, and to succumb to absolute evil more than anyone other, any other mortal in the DC Universe. And number one, of course, Lex Luthor. So the top of the list, Lex Luthor. Honestly, who else could have filled that slot? He's the de facto leader, occasional organizer of DC's villains, Superman's greatest rival, Lex Luthor. Whether he's feeling the role of ruthless politician, corrupt businessman, and infuri infuriatingly untouchable mad scientist, or an out-and-out mega-powered menace, Luthor is possessed of a confidence and an intellect rivaled by none, and his greatest strength is his greatest weakness, his absolute and utter selfishness. 
All right, the greatest villains of all time to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the greatest superheroes of all time. And of course, blah, 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 movies, movies, movies. Okay, we were talking about comics, but let's talk for a moment about movies. Because people still insist, let's talk about the movies. What about TV? They whine, okay, fine, let's run down the movies and TV, if we must. And let's even do video games, because nerds will not shut up. Okay. The last decade may heavily favor Marvel's MCU, especially Black Panther, which, you know, let's not get into the idea of exceptionalism, but one does not make all. I'm just saying. Beautiful, perfect thing, but just one. Uh, Thor Ragnarok, also good. Whatever. But if you want to talk about the history of great superhero movies, you got to go way back. Who started that shit? Uh, Superman movies, the Dark Knight trilogy, right? Along with decades of beloved screen adaptations of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, just saying. Okay, so Marvel may have had it today. You know, they're having it right now in the cinematic sunshine. That's great. But DC has many, many, many great film adaptations under its utility belt, just saying. Um, <laughs> DC versus Marvel, video games, if we must, animated movies. DC's killing it there. They've got the Batman Arkham series, one of the most critically acclaimed game franchises ever, uh, with Batman Arkham Asylum, Batman Arkham City, winning Game of the Year awards, and of course there's Injustice, Gods Among Us, and Injustice 2. And another media where DC's dominance is absolute is animated movies. All right, again, you might say, oh, one, this new Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse. Oh yeah, that shit rocked, but it was one movie, okay. DC versus Marvel on TV. TV boils down to pretty much the Arrowverse versus Netflix, Defenders, whatever. Trust me when I say there was a long, long list of critical rate ratings from like Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, but at the conclusion, it was all about how DC shows are more highly rated. Um, the Arrow and The Flash still killing it after many, many seasons. Okay, all of that said, let's take it back to the comic books, the source. DC versus Marvel comic book sales. A few years ago, Marvel might have been at the uh, forefront, right? They might have had the advantage, but no more. The last several years, DC has been knocking it out of the park. Amazing titles, Doomsday Clock, Dark Knight, Metal, not to mention um, Rebirth, which is huge, and according to this nerd, <laughs> the size and scope and the sales made Marvel's Civil War II look like a kindergarten story. So, killing the competition. And in the last years, just to point it out, December 2017, top five comics, four, four of DC, one Marvel. Six of the top ten are DC. January a uh, year ago, top five, four DC, zero Marvel. Six of the top ten, DC. Just last year, almost exactly, Marvel. They got into that top 10 again. They got five titles. But of the top five, three are DC, one Marvel. Just saying. Finally, if you take nothing else away from this, from this rigorous scientific investigation, here are the top three reasons that DC rules. Number three, the greatest female superhero of all time, extremely powerful in her own right, Definitely number four, if not number three, in the all-time Justice League of America, in terms of power. In Batman's words, the best hand-to-hand -hand fighter, fighter on Earth, better than Shazam, better than John, better than Superman, better than even Batman. 
a huge cultural icon, one of the strongest symbols of female empowerment in all of fiction, the god killer, Wonder Woman. Number two, second greatest superhero of all time, and my personal favorite, second best-selling comic book character of all time, bested only by Superman himself, currently the best-selling comic book character in recent years by a long margin, drives the world's coolest car, possesses amazing gadgets, absolutely incorruptible, infinitely devious and cunning, bows to no one, not even Superman, commander-in-chief of the Justice League. When a whimpering criminal is sobbing, I swear to God, his response is, swear to me. <laughs> the Dark Knight, Batman. Thank you. And finally, number one, the greatest superhero of all time, the father of the mo modern comic book superhero, the best-selling comic book character of all time worldwide, including manga. That's how you say that shit, right? Adjusting for inflation. <laughs> that I did know. Adjusting for inflation, he still has the highest-grossing superhero movie of all time. Just saying. Although, I don't know if this is up to date with the Black Panther. I don't know. DC's entire lineup, of course, followed him. Everybody followed him. His success paved the way for the creation of Batman, another legend. And if you go to Google Images and search for superhero, who does everyone look like? He's almost unbeatable. His creators had to fabricate a weakness for him. He popularized flight among superheroes, popularized super strength among superheroes, popularized superhero chest symbols. Why do you think so many superheroes have their names ending in man? Last but not least, he is the definitive, most important superhero ever created and one of the most powerful cultural icons across the world. And he belongs to DC. Obviously, you know who I'm talking about. Leader of the Justice League, the light of hope, the man of steel, Superman, DC word. All right, so there it is, Marvel or DC. <laughs> Mr. Paul Tiotto, what do you say? It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. It's DC. Andy Diamond wins that bout. Hey, gentlemen, Brian Sweeney that it is uh, a hell of a hooli. Hell of a hooli. Hello, everyone. Good-looking crowd. Especially Paul. Hey, man. <laughs> hey, aren't you the writer of Pasta Man? It's great. Everyone should buy that. Anyway, you look great. Um, of course, it's a very sad day today. Sorry to bring the room down. Luke Perry passed away. It is true. Really? Yes. I'm sorry, David. Should we end the show? Well. I was always more of a Jason. Next month, Jason Priestley or 
It's a man has died, people. Uh, I bring this up because I am Irish. Brian Patrick Sweeney. And of course, Luke Perry, most famous for playing Dylan Michael McKay. <laughs> Beverly Hills 90210. So. Dylan McKay was a student at West Beverly High School. And I'm sure you remember, he had the reputation being a dangerous loner. But through the gang, Brandon, Donna, Kelly, Steve, David, Andrea, and especially Brenda, he was able to soften his rebel attitude. So. His love with Brenda helps him through many traumatic events. Struggle with alcoholism, which is tough and is a curse for my people. And it's not just an unfortunate stereotype. There's a lot of research showing that nationalities and ethnicities that have alcoholism are actually stronger through evolution. This is true, and that's why they help survive. And I believe that was best exemplified by Dylan McKay on Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> of course, he also went through his father's arrest and conviction for several white collar crimes. Uh, and then he witnessed his father being blown up by a car bomb. <laughs> only to then find out later it was all staged because his father was going into the witness protection program. I know that I'm over, you know, running through things that everyone here knows. <laughs> so this is boring for you. But this is about the life of Luke Perry. So. After the death of his wife, Tony, who was killed by a hitman <laughs> that was shooting at Dylan and actually had been hired by Tony's father, that's Shakespearean, folks. He went to London and reunited with Brenda and lived with her in an apartment in London. Because underneath bad boy Dylan McKay, Underneath that beautiful eyebrow scar, mm, <laughs> was an Irish lover. Just a happy man, trying to get out, celebrating. St. Patrick's Day is the celebration of that Irish spirit. <laughs> the spirit over hardship for generations the Irish was controlled and oppressed population in their homeland. The phrase, cut off your nose to spite your face. This comes because 
long even before the British thought, hey, look at Ireland, let's go just take what we want and kill all of them. The Vikings used to do it when they were bored. They would just keep coming back. And the Vikings hated religion. The Irish people, of course, are uh, the good, the south side is Irish, is uh, Catholic. The north is Protestant. <clears throat> and so uh, what the Vikings would like to do is rape the nuns on top of the altars of Catholic churches and then just then like plunder and then leave and like that was their fun much like the Joker just burning the pile of money just because life is chaos and we're Vikings uh, and then they'd come back and they'd do it again and find more nuns and rape and murder and pillage so uh, one of the mother superiors, when the Vikings were on their way, I don't know, they figured that out, and she uh, decided to literally cut the nose off of her face so that she would be too horrific for the Vikings to rape her, and the rest of the nuns in her church did the same. This is what the Irish do. <laughs> England treated, and still treats Ireland like a colony, and the Irish people suffered, and still suffer as a result. Now, I don't know, I've met Elizabeth, I believe, once. I'm not sure why she's against celebrating people overcoming adversity. I can't say. <laughs> and it's not for me to understand Elizabeth's bigotry. We're not gonna get through that tonight. I accept that she has her reasons why she has prejudices against other nationalities. That's her thing. So, because blackface is not a celebration. It's terrible. You guys been hearing about this stuff? It's crazy. Hear what's going on in Virginia? They're still in office too, it's just we forgot. All right. Probably thinking about Luke too much. It's rooted in a form of makeup used by non-black performers to represent caricatures of a black person. And its popularity was to represent the racial stereotype of the, quote, happy-go-lucky darkie on the plantation, which seems like a contradiction, but apparently isn't part of a history of denied citizenship and of efforts to excuse and justify state violence from lynching to mass incarceration, whites have utilized blackface and the resulting dehumanization as part of its moral and legal justification for violence. And that is not in keeping with celebration of overcoming hardships. That is not in keeping with the spirit of Dylan McKay. When Suzanne Steele and Kevin Weaver conned Dylan out of his life savings with promises to help fund a personal project promoting clean beaches, a cause, as you remember, Dylan was very passionate about, he never lost his strong Irish spirit. And we like celebration. I can see, we all like beer. Hey. Conan O'Brien. Yay. Team Coco, Mark Wahlberg, 
Yeah. Lucky Charms. Yeah. Now with Magical Unicorn Marshmallows. Yay! Chocolate Lucky Charms. Woo! Frosted Lucky Charms. Leprechaun Trap Lucky Charms? Yes! The movie Leprechaun? Okay! Leprechaun 2? Why not? Leprechaun 3? Give us more! Leprechaun 4 in Space? Where's Jennifer Aniston? Leprechaun 5, Leprechaun in the Hood? Leprechaun 6, Leprechaun Back to the Hood? Leprechaun 7, Leprechaun Origins? Leprechaun 8, Leprechaun Returns? Which came out last year. As we, as we all know. Because in 1970, the end of the 60s came, both numeric <laughs> both numerically and in spirit. Paul McCartney, yeah, Paul McCartney, it's an Irish name. <clears throat> name of a saint. Paul is, Paul McCartney is Irish. Paul McCartney is Irish, thank you. You'll have your turn. Uh, <laughs> Paul McCartney. Uh, he was known as the cute one the, of the four lovable lads from Liverpool. He announced that the Beatles had broken up. It was the end of an era. But, as every ending begets a new beginning, also in 1970, in the great city of Chicago, Illinois, <laughs> go Blackhawks! A new shake was created. Using lemon lime sherbet with vanilla cream named the Shamrock Shake. While 1970 saw America widen the war in Vietnam with President Richard Milhouse Nixon ordering the invasion of Cambodia and the dream of the 60s, peace and love, fully ending. The Shamrock Shake did what the Irish spirit did gave people a reason for hope. <laughs> a reason to hold on. The Shamrock Shake, Lucky Charms, Dylan McKay. <laughs> These are the things that inspire hope. If I may quote, every great dream begins with a dreamer. Always remember you have within you the strength, the patience, and the passion to reach for the stars to change the world. Harriet Tubman. <laughs> Rest in peace, Luke Perry. And happy St. Patrick's Day, Harriet Tubman. Thank you. That's Brian Sweeney. One more time for Brian Sweeney. All right, so now to debate the other side of that, that it's not pride, it's sheer racism. Fresh from Ireland. And she brings a chair, Elizabeth Thierry. I don't need a chair, but my books do. Can I ask you, uh, Judge, what um, what pronoun you prefer? He, gentleman, she, mix, Mister, Sir. Uh, that's fine. Yes. Yes. Great. Because some of us 
care about not offending people. <laughs> and today I'm here to present to you the undeniable evidence that our celebration of St. Patrick's Day is racist. Beyond a doubt, it is racist. We are going to look at the saint himself, use facts and history and logic to discuss this idea. And uh, we're going to use societal norms and some mistaken assumptions to explain this. Now, my opponent has shared some very touching and rather humorous anecdotes about being Irish. And I'm here to discuss the facts, okay? This is about, debate is about facts. Uh, and not sensationalism, not fiction, not television characters, not corporate shakes, not even breakfast cereal, which is one of the biggest scams of all time. Let's just be honest. But facts. So I present to you, gentlemen and gentlemen of the jury judge, Exhibit A. One, St. Patrick. This is a rubbing I did of a bronze plaque at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin two weeks ago. Can anybody tell me what St. Patrick actually did? I got a couple of hands. You've both spoken tonight, so I'm going to call on this lady here. Oh, I'm guessing. I think I'll take guesses. Something. something about snakes. That's a pretty good guess. Any others? Let the children to snakes. Oh, led the children to snakes. This is another example of your excellent fatherhood. And, Sweeney? Well, he got the snakes out of Ireland, but what he actually did was help bring Catholicism to Ireland. Close as we're getting tonight. Very good. Uh, and does anybody have any idea when this happened? On March 17th. Like March 17th. She's a really good guesser. <laughs> just about, just about. Okay, so St. Patrick, whose death we celebrate, on uh, March 17th, we're gonna just let that go for a moment. Uh, that's his death. In the second half of the fifth century, he was 16 years old, a British boy, not even Irish. A British boy is captured by Celtic pirates. He's taken to Ireland and enslaved for six years before escaping to go back home, where he's trained like a priest because his dad's a priest because they're all priests because that's how it goes. And uh, then he returns to Ireland as a missionary and founds Christianity, which becomes Catholicism in Ireland, okay? So we're not even celebrating an Irish person. We're celebrating a British person who saw what Ireland was all about and then was like, hey, you guys have no idea what's going on. Let me teach you how to be better at being yourselves. <laughs> Exhibit A. Exhibit B is this idea of racism. I'm great, thanks. <laughs> I would explain. <laughs> thanks. It's <laughs> My favorite dictionary is Webster's. So I would like to share with you what Webster's has to say about racism. It's a belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and char characteristics and cap capacities, and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. This also involves racial prejudice or discrimination. But I want you to remember that inherent superiority. Like when St. Patrick came over and said, hey, your religion isn't good enough. Let me show you mine and force it on you. 
Now, a race is a big thing that we talk about because race over centuries has been decided by who's ever in charge decides how we get to decide what a race is. But in my world, it's all about Webster. And so Webster tells us that race is a family, tribe, people, or nation belonging to the same stock or be a class of people unified by community of interests, habits, or characteristics. And I know that in today we often talk about race as this thing of color. We talk about people of color. Uh, and you might ask yourself, how the heck could you say anything that happens to the Irish, who are notoriously white, uh, could be called racism? But I want to remind you of a pre-daily Chicago of the Irish of the 19th and early 20th century. So I give to you as exhibit C, the Irish. <laughs> as oppressed by the British since the Norman invasion of 1116. Okay, that was a really long time ago. Uh, and lasted for over 800 years. Now he was talking about the Vikings, which I think is a great point also. Like I'm just talking about the British. We're, I'm starting this history technically in the fifth century, but in 1169. Now, when we think about the Irish in Chicago, we mostly think about the mid-1800s because of the potato famine, uh, which caused more than 200, I'm sorry, more than 2 million Irish to leave Ireland and come to Chicago. Now, if you think about 2 million Irish people leaving Ireland, that's like the population of Chicago, leaving Ireland to come to America. And this happens over forever, kind of, starting in 1845. Uh, they come to dig the canals to help out with the railroads and do a lot of things. And in this era, in 1845, 1850s, 1860s, Chicago's kind of brand new. We're like 10, maybe 20 years old as a city, uh, and the Irish are the lowest of the low. Now, when we think about Chicago history, what's one of the first things that comes to mind? Cow fire. The burn. Right. Okay, so as uh, exhibit C, like two, I'm at now, the Great Chicago Fire, which happened in 1871, happened to have been born on the anniversary of the fire, uh, and uh, it lasted for over three days and destroys one third of our city. It doesn't go out until it starts raining. Only the heavens can put out our Chicago Fire. And the story is that it was started by that darn cow, Bessie, right? Uh, and when you look at one of the definitive accounts of the Great Chicago Fire, there is no mention of that woman. What's that woman's name? Mary. Who can tell me her first name? Dylan McKay. <laughs> Case in point. She is one of the most famous Chicagoans, one of the most famous Irish Americans. You can't even tell me her first name. <laughs> She's an Irish lady, take a guess. Mary? Kate. Kate. Her name is Catherine. 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 Don't say I never taught you nothing. For those of you who don't know, I work as a Chicago tour guide as my main income. Uh, and. I want you to know that most people come from all over the like people come from all over the world to Chicago. And you ask them, one of my first questions when I take people on tours, what do you already know about Chicago? Bang bang Al Capone, Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Okay? Michael Jordan and Obama. 
Oprah. Uh, Oprah sneaks in as the fifth. She's really? a little she's a little out of the loop now. Not now oh. Okay. Not not even close. Chance is actually much higher than Kanye internationally. Thank goodness, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. Bang bang, Al Capone, Alfonso Capone, all the way, all the way. Uh, people say this all the time. So Mrs. O'Leary is one of the most famous Chicagoans. Guess who's not in this book of Chicago portraits? Come on, people. This is me showing you the oppression of the Irish Americans in our history. Now, let's talk about, for the sake of time, that those of us respect, uh, let's talk about uh, uh, St. Patrick's Day now, right? We've got our background. We've got our, our, our facts. Now let's talk about St. Patrick's Day, which I don't have books to exhibit to you because we've all seen it. Okay, we've all experienced how we celebrate St. Patrick's Day. I don't know about you guys, but as a tour guide, I cringe at St. Patrick's Day. I live for the day when I am established enough as an adult that I can take that Saturday off downtown and not work because it is so insane. And the crazy parts about St. Patrick's Day are, it's not us down there drinking. It's not the Irish. It's not the city people. It's the suburban children whose parents are who knows where, letting them be drunk, half-dressed, at 11 a.m. in March in Chicago. And who told those kids they didn't need to put pants on, come downtown, at 11 a.m. in March in Chicago? Do you see how cold it is outside? These are not Irish people, okay? These are not city people. These are people coming from nowhere to celebrate a culture that is not theirs and celebrating it poorly. What do they do? They paint things green, like our poor river, that could use all the help it gets. Why do we shove some more dye in it? It's actually an algae. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure it helps. I'm sure it helps. It's totally safe. Yeah, McDonald's. Anything that comes from McDonald's is totally safe, right? Keep drinking your Diet Coke. And then they drink a ton of beer and get wasted and trash our city. Okay, this is not what the Irish do. The Irish came here to build this city. The Irish came here to leave famine behind for a new hope, for a new start, for a new world, in a time when that still felt possible by just jumping on a boat and picking a new city and building a new life for yourself. This is not what we celebrate on St. Patrick's Day. And I, this is not what we're doing. So what we should be doing, as my last point, is celebrating the amazing things that come from the Irish. Why do we think of them as drunks? Yeah, they make a lot of beer. They make a hell of a lot of beer. Uh, and that's wonderful, but they drink that beer because their water is terrible. Their conditions are terrible. They work shit jobs and need every help they can get to get through their working days. And so yeah, they drink a lot and they have drinking problems. But what does that give us? That gives us suffragettes. That gives us the temperance movement. That gives us women's rights. It comes along that way. We wouldn't have women's voting in America without the temperance movement. That's how we learn that women have a political voice. And women in Ireland were able to vote something like 35 years before we were able to vote in America. When Irish women came as immigrants to Chicago and found that Chicago women weren't allowed to vote, they left in our faces because we didn't have a voice in the political system. They taught us that voice. 
They also taught us all kinds of stuff about revolution in the early teens and 20s. And some of my favorite is the literature and queer history that comes out of Ireland. I'm great, thanks. <laughs> Some of my favorites are James Joyce, Dracula. Did you know Dracula was Irish? And, uh, which I don't have a book of because I always give it to people because I love it so much, is Dorian Gray, which is Oscar Wilde. These are queer people who stood up a hundred years ago and said, I can be who I am, wrote us novels that we make into these monsters where they have to hide who they are in closets and portraits because it's such a shame to be their queer selves in normal culture. These people are amazing people and for some reason, we don't celebrate the queer history. We don't celebrate the universe-renowned literature. We don't celebrate the people who dug our canals or made us amazing beer. We just get drunk and put some green stuff in our hair and say, woo. That's not a celebration. That's racist. That's diminutive. It brings an entire culture, an entire tribe of people down to a couple of things, a couple of characteristics. And that is the definitive reason it is racist. And so if you want to tell me that your uh, St. Patrick's Day isn't racist, go out and read a book, have a beer, start a fucking revolution, and remind people that it isn't just about drinking. Thank you. That was some heavy shit. And I, I say that with all, all absolute due respect. That was... Just keeping it real. Who needs a drink? Oh. <laughs> that was good. All right, so let's hear from the, from the Irish judge who wrote a book called Pasta Man, which is a great book that you should read. <laughs> is St. Patrick's Day racist? Or is it a celebration of a great culture? Like Brian's green shirt. <laughs> uh, I am going to go with the tour guide and it's racist. And that, my friends, is Bug House. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Thank you so much for being here, participating, judging Mr. Paul Teodo. The drink that's here for Jules, our, our bartender tonight. The Haymarket Public Brewery in Chicago. My name's David Hamill. This is Little Nate. Thank you for being here. Have a good night. Thank you.